Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 179 is Mike Lindup, who most folks will know from his work with Level 42 starting in 1981. You're right now listening to one of their biggest singles, Something About You, from World Machine 1985. That was a collaboration largely with Mark King, the bass player slash baritone singer that you're hearing. And then Mike would sing the high harmonies, or in this case, he is the lead on the choruses. The other members of that original band through this, their most famous period, were Phil and Roland Gould, who played drum and guitar respectively and wrote a lot of the lyrics for the band. We also talk about Wally Badaru, who was another keyboardist who played on all of Level 42's 80s output, but was never actually in the band. In any case, their last album for their initial run was their ninth album in 1991, Mike's first solo album, Changes, came out in 1990. His second was not until 2003, and shortly after that he rejoined Level 42, mostly for touring, but they put out a couple albums. His third album, or technically an EP, was uh, On The One from 2011, and he is still working on his fourth album. He's just released his third single, which is the first song we're going to be talking about, Atlantia. And then we'll look back to Madness from that 2011 product and to an early Level 42 song, Weave Your Spell from 1982's The Pursuit of Accidents. And finally, we'll hear Heart of the Matter from that solo piano album Conversations with Silence from 2003. For more information, please see MikeLindup.com. For more about this podcast, go to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. You want to make sure you're actually signed up for the Nakedly Examined Music Podcast feed. If you're hearing this through the Partially Examined Life feed, the episodes don't stick around very long on that. Or if you enjoy the show, I encourage you to support it with a small per-episode donation that's at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will get you not only ad-free episodes, but access to the detailed notes that I take on the episodes, including the lyrics and structures and my arrangement comments. Here we go. So I will have played a little bit of Something About You by Level 42 from World Machine 1985, your biggest song, at least the biggest one that you're one of the writers on. We're going to get very quickly to your newest thing, but can we give a little bit of shape? I mean, people are are probably familiar with your Level 42 work, but then your first solo album is 1990, and then a big jump, you know, 2003, 2011. So the one you're working on right now is number four. And still doing, you know, live stuff still with Level 42 sometime. What is the shape of your career at this point? I mean, Level 42 has come into a rich scene, especially really mainly now as a live band. We've been doing a sort of UK European tour every two years since I rejoined in 2006 and festivals every summer. And that's just been growing and growing. In 2012, we released an EP called Sirens, 
And that brought with it as like a, a proper three-piece brass section onto that EP and then also to the live. And that's been our lineup. It's just like a seven-piece lineup since 2012. And it really works in so many respects dynamically. So in 2019, we played 20 festivals over the summer, including St. Petersburg and Quebec City and places we've not played before, all on the strength of the kind of live act. And 2020, of course, was going to be the 40th anniversary. And then the rug was pulled for the obvious reason. But it seems to have sort of more or less jumped back in this year. So we're doing loads of festivals this summer again. And that's really what I'm doing as a live musician is playing with Level 42. And then I've got a few side projects and then I've got my solo album. Your solo career is now the main destination for your creativity. Is that right? I noticed at least the Retroglide album that you had rejoined in time for, you didn't have any writing on that. Maybe that was just a matter of when you rejoined at that point. Were you fully integrated at that point with the Sirens EP? I would say so. Although, I mean, the Retroglide album was more or less on its way by the time I was invited to rejoin. And the Sirens EP was, Mark was very sure that he wanted to find a direction that he felt that the band could go in. So I'm not really involved in the writing on the Sirens, but I am involved in the recording and some of the arrangement and also obviously the live exposition of those tunes. Well, let's talk then about this current album project. So we waited until your third single, Atlantia, which is the one we're about to hear, was going to come out. So it's been a very gradual process. You were saying that this is quite an involved thing. I mean, at least sounds like it's not just you at home programming your synth that you're bringing in a full horn section and quite a bit here. Well, these ideas for tunes have been wanting to come out of me for some time. And I tend to be, I make the analogy with the Cobbler's Sun's shoes Mm. where Everyone gets, and the Cobbler's Sun is kind of last in the queue. It's the same, generally speaking, with my solo projects. So I sort of put everything else first. But finally, I decided, right, it's time for these tunes to come out. I did a session for a club artist. And my two co-producers, Tony Economides and Mike Pato, were producing this guy. And I really enjoyed how they worked with him. And it occurred to me that these would be great guys to help me get my next solo project going because they're involved in mixing dance and club music and also world music i'd work with tony in particular Mm -hmm. on a delata project which is kind of brazilian r&b and because they're much more plugged into kind of what's currently around and new soul stuff and so on i thought well they might be good you know to sort of bring me up to speed with especially on the production side So we started working together in March 2019, and it's been fantastic because they've aided and abetted me and really helped bring my ideas to fruition and also challenged me, which is kind of what I wanted, is the kind of good kind of artistic challenges from producers saying, yeah, no, Mike, you know, we can do this differently or better, or let's reference this or let's try that. So it's sort of taking me out of my comfort zone, which I really do appreciate, although sometimes not at the time. Well, let's get this recent single, Atlantia, out on the table. Do you have just a few words about what it's about before we hear it? It's about several things. The the strands are, I I was kind of really looking into my identity and saying that, you know, my mum is black and my dad is white. So I've grown up, if you like, as a mixed race person, never fully comfortable with identifying with either one. I've always kind of, in my kind of spiritual readings, thought, you know, really by 2022, we should be relating to each other a bit like the crew on the original Star Trek did, mm-hmm. where they're not looking at the differences. They're kind of like one united earth going and exploring new boundaries. 
It's my plea to say, you know, can we get there already?
can you say something about that initial sound bed that you've got this repeating 16th note pattern that I thought at first just ran through the whole song, but I noticed actually it does go away at some points, but you have sort of funky guitar that carefully fill. You have something that fills that spot throughout so that it can feel like a very continuous thing. The original inspiration for the tune, I mean, it, it started as a musical idea, was in fact a new keyboard. I mm. just purchased a Dave Smith Sequential Prophet Rev 2. You know, having been an original Prophet 5 user for many years and then been playing the Prophet 8 since 2010. And I heard good things about the Rev 2 and I was just going through the presets and I found this sound and this arpeggio sound. And I started to play with it and thinking, oh, that sounds nice. And then the chords that back that, that you hear at the beginning of the record, that's one of my favorite Prophet presets where you have the two oscillators tuned in fifths and it gives very rich chords and quite sort of specific voicings that you can't do or you can only do certain voicings that work. And Hmm. I love that sound. And it's a sound that we've used, well, Level 42 used it on the Bridge of the Chinese Way and it's featured various times. So that was the kind of starting point. And this guitarist, Alan Salmon, who I met doing a a Thriller Live musical show in London and on tour, fantastic guitarist. And that, is it actual bass or bass keys or both? I thought I'd heard when it was sort of exposed at the beginning that there was, maybe it's just the sound she's using, that there's sort of a a synth thickness or something, or that you were doubling it with your left hand or, you know, with an overdub or something to thicken it up. Maybe it's just the way it was mixed. No, it's her fat bass sound. It's just bass guitar on there. Any thought about sort of how you map that out versus what she came in and did? I mean, that groove. Are the drums programmed? Yeah, yeah. We tried several different drum approaches with this. And we ended up with, you know, like a program bass and snare drum beat that Tony sourced, and I played live hi-hats because I was dusting off the chops of my drumming as well on this album, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the track. And on Atlantia, it's basically live hi-hat and cymbal overdubs on a program sort of bass and drums. And so it's you kind of get this nice sort of hybrid effect. We got the real bass and the program drums, so it's kind of solid but human, or at least I feel so. Is it a problem if you have something like the, you know, an obviously programmed element but then have a real drummer that's playing over it. Like obviously in the 80s, if, if they wanted to have a real drummer on it at all, probably you're, you're doing some of that. You know, he's playing with a click track or something. Is it just easier to make it much more locked in by just make the kick and the, high, and the snare at least electronic? It depends. You can do it different ways. But I mean, I've been working with sequences and arpeggiators for many, many years. If you go and see Level 42 Live, Quite a few of our tracks you know, feature arpeggiators or sequences, and we play live along with it. And to us, it's just like playing with another musician. I think they can be quite funky, and there's real subtleties. You can make something sound like it's absolutely on the grid and mechanical if you want it to, but you can also give it a feel as well. It's amazing what you can do now. It's very powerful. You were mentioning the particular sound that you're using for the main chords, and these jazz chords lend themselves to it's a contemplative song you know it's like you're wondering this whole song is very thoughtful it's it's a social critique but it's not like a change the world now it's a i wonder why things are so messed up kind of and those particular voicings 
I didn't like try to sit down and chart. Like, do you know what the chords are in particular that you're playing or are these things you write with your fingers? And, you know, is it sharp ninth kind of a... Yeah, I mean, don't ask me to tell me what the chords are because I wouldn't be able to tell you. It would take me, you know, three days to figure it out. That's what I was wondering, whether you, again, write with your fingers because like on the keyboard especially, it's so easy to stumble on really thick, juicy things or whether there was some music theory brain driving all this. It's totally an organic process. One chord sort of leads the way to another chord that leads the way to another chord. And I suppose I have a kind of a harmonic fingerprint by now where you know, there are places that I like to go that seem to work. Going back to what you were saying about the tone of the song, because you know, really why it's called Atlantia was I was referencing Atlantis mm-hmm. and um, some reading that I'd done. The civilization of Atlantis represented a peak in humanity in terms of its awareness, but also technologically. There was a fall which apparently was due to the floods, but I'm interested in saying whether it's true or not. But it was back to my kind of Star Trek thing of saying, okay, so can we look beyond skin, look beyond race and culture? Because that's something I've discovered from all of these years of going on tour in all of these countries. You know, I love touring and I love traveling and meeting people from different places. And really, you know, we have so much more in common. I mean, it's a cliche, but we do have so much more in common than we do that what separates us. So I know on the early stuff, you did not write lyrics. Was that just because other people were more, the Goulds were more eager to jump into that? But you're already writing them for particular songs, even by the mid 80s for your whole first solo album 1990 i know even you weren't starting as even a singer that that's something but obviously that developed pretty quickly you already have the rhythm bed and then you come up with the message or it sounds like with this one you actually had the idea for this message that you're describing before any song was actually written is that right i suppose the thought was probably there but i had no intention of necessarily putting it out as a message or a finished song the music came first The music kind of inspired. I thought, this is something uplifting. So I want to, I discussed with Mike and Tony, and Mike in particular, who I collaborated on the lyrics with, that we very much wanted to write grown-up lyrics. It's kind of where I'm coming from anyway. I I mean, guess from the experience I've had and the age I'm at, I'm now 63. I'm past the kind of like teenage angst type lyrics, you know. I mean, there's still love songs on this album or relationship songs, but I feel that there is a kind of, a responsibility and also a self-expression in making some commentary now about the world. And I think why the Goulds were so good and why they jumped in at the beginning of Level 42 is because they had a lot of ideas already formed in their kind of younger minds and they were quite opinionated, if I can say that. Mm -hmm. And I was probably as opinionated, but I was very shy about it. I've never come out and say what I really thought. It's taken me a lot of years to sort of develop that. Whereas they were like jumping with the get-go, pointing fingers and stuff. They led the way with lyric writing. And also it was quite hard for me to jump in at that point because there were quite, there were, you know, some incredible word crafting going on. You know, you have to kind of work at it and develop it. You know, there is a skill to it. Was there at least an openness since everything is co-written officially to that particular line you wrote is hard to say with my mouth. I'm going to change this word or that or was there sort of a, no, that is the sacred text and we will set it. There's what you want to say and then there's how to say it that works lyrically in terms of is it a good phrase to sing? Do the consonants fall easily? Sometimes you have to change the way you want to say something in order for it to kind of work as a lyric. And lyrics are that special thing where a lot of lyrics you could say are poetic, but it's not poetry. It's really something that sits between 
something that's spoken or sung and a totally musical idea. Some of the best lyrics, you know, if you take away the music, they're very kind of bland and vacuous as words, but add the music and it becomes something else. There's a sort of distillation and an alchemy that's involved in writing lyrics, I think. With this one, so now that you're you know, mentioning the sort of Star Trek imagery that I'm looking in, our double helix reaching for the stars, our progeny diverse, this human universe, you know, you've got those sort of images in there. Did that then influence? You've got these really great punctuating synth sounds. I never understood with this like gurgly Do you remember that? What sound I'm talking about enough to even say, like, how many hours are you spending searching through sound banks? Are you constructing some of this from scratch or what? I have a great ally in that. Mike Pato came up with that sound because he's a fantastic keyboard player and programmer. So I sort of came up with the sequencer and the basic chord bed, and I opened up some real piano on it. And a lot of the spacey sounds and the kind of rich and surprising sounds were Mike's work and I suppose having worked for years with Wally Badru, you know, he had a different approach as a keyboard player. We complemented each other. I found that same relationship with Mike. He'll kind of fill the gaps that I don't fill and, and vice versa. Well, and one of those gaps here that might have been a Wally thing is these actual horns here, which I almost asked like, wow, did you get Jimmy Pankow from Chicago to do this? Because they're some really nicely flavored. Which of your producers are, were you arranging those? That was my call. I got in touch with a fantastic trombone player and arranger called Nicole Thompson. Mm. He's been playing with Level 42 and our live lineup since 2012. It's part of the brass section. But he writes and arranges, and he's a massive Jerry Hay, Seawind Horns fan. And in fact, him and Tom Walsh, who plays trumpet, they're the horn section on this track. And they now actually do sessions for Jerry Hay. They've got his kind of seal of approval. And Nicole is incredibly, he's like a library of all of the great, you know, Earth, Wind and the Fire and all the Quincy stuff and so on. He knows all of those bits inside out. And so he's able to sort of come up with those kind of lines. And I just knew if he liked the track that I'd get some great horn stuff. Well, and I really like the way it's mixed too, because horns are very often on. <laughs> Or they're off. Whereas here, it's like, okay, we just have a little bit coming in. And I wasn't even sure the first time I heard it, is this actual horn or is this a synth thing? But okay, by the time the song gets going and you figure that there's a very active horn section in so much of it, just balancing that against all the other four different synth sounds and the three different guitar sounds, I noticed about the second verse where the sequence thing finally drops out for a little while, that you've got at least, I think, two or three guitars in there, you know, a nice chorusy one. And Was some of this done over the internet, passing tracks back and forth at this time, given the pandemic and all? I was quite lucky in that both Yolanda on bass and Alan Salmon on guitar were able to come to the studio and we were able to work in situ and in person, which they did that in 2019, just before oh, okay. the kind of you know lockdown came in. So we had those parts already, but I have to give credit to Tony Economides as an engineer because he has the ability to sort of allow lots of things to happen at once, but not get in the way of each other. And, you know, sometimes it's a very fine balance and sometimes you have to resort to the mute button 
and Kill Your Darlings. But just the way that the track built, it kind of it wanted to have that majestic thing. So that's why I wanted horns. I love the rhythm guitar. I definitely wanted to feature that. And of course, a few bits of fairy dust on the keyboards coming in and here and there were just like the icing on the cake. Let me play one little clip. This is the Shards of the Divine and this transition back to the chorus. We haven't talked about your vocal layering. Is this all you on this? It is me. I am in there. And there are women later in the song. They're coming in. I mean, on the choruses and in the BVs, I've got fantastic vocalists. I've got Vanessa Freeman and Lucita Jules, who are both really wonderful vocalists. And having their voices in there was important because I wanted to make the chorus especially, you know, a kind of universal cry. And, you know, again, this is something that, doesn't normally happen in a level 42 situation where Mark and I, you know, handle pretty much all of the backing vocals. So it's nice to work with other vocalists and get other colors going. That particular part where it, you add an extra, what is it, a whole measure? It's a, it's a few extra beats at least. It's another measure on the end and the, so that's a blend of me and Vanessa and Lucita. And then have that really nice break where you do the horn blasts and then everything can come back. And it's sort of, you know, once you set up this 16th note synth thing, again, it's challenging because it seems like you want it to run through the whole song to provide a basis. But as you pointed out, it drops out at certain places just because you got to have a break or you got to have when the chorus comes back, like, oh, that thing is there again, you know. So having these little spots in there, I don't know any thoughts about your ongoing engineering of even just how long to make the song, how long should the solo go at the end, etc. I'm a bit on velvet here. Luckily, there's no 1980s style record company A&R person leaning over my shoulder and going, are you aware a single has to be three minutes 40? Um, Which happened to us once. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the song is the song. It takes me a while to say what I want to say. So my songs tend to be, you know, six or seven minutes on average. And it's my album. So, you know, I'll do what I want. (laughs) I am very grateful to our recurring sponsors that make this show possible, including Nebbia, a high-powered, high-tech innovator in the area of showering. Nebbia was started by engineers that previously worked at Tesla, NASA, and Apple, who were passionate about saving the planet. We have a real water crisis in our world, and particularly in the western half of our country right now, as many of you know or are experiencing. So these folks wanted to design a... Superior shower experience that would use less water. Tim Cook was their first investor, and they partnered with industry leaders Moen to create the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower, which uses atomized droplets to heat up the environment of your shower. They sent me one of these. I have long talked about what a luxurious experience this is. A high-pressure shower head does the job, rinses even the thickest hair, but then... They introduced the Quattro, their most affordable shower yet, which they also sent me. And now I can experience four spray modes, including two powerful high-pressure spray modes in addition to the spa spray. So now it satisfies all types of water preferences. And it is the easiest installation yet. A three-minute process as easy as changing a light bulb. Available as a fixed rain shower or hand shower version. Both are made with recycled ocean plastic using manufacturing processes not only for the shower, but for their shower curtains, bath mats, hooks, shower shelves that are super sustainable. 
Each mode of the shower saves 40 to 50 percent of water compared to traditional shower. So it's really going to pay for itself over not that much time. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A.com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. Well, let's get the second song out there. Madness from your last completed solo album on the one 2011. Can you say briefly where you were at at this point? Uh, this again was a good nine years, eight years since the previous album and the previous album was all piano instrumental. So this is sort of the template for, I guess, the current thing you're working on. It's a song EP and madness. I had a, the kind of musical bed, like a four bar loop, basically mm-hmm. played live. I had that sort of somewhere on an ideas tape, but I wasn't sure what it was going to be until I was driving in and I heard a discussion on the radio and they were talking about the Second World War and specifically about the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And there's a journalist writer who'd written a book about it and saying, basically justifying the fact that if those bombs hadn't been dropped, then the war would have lasted longer and a lot more people would have been killed which is a point of view, but it just made me so mad because having visited Japan, I just thought, well, what a way to justify wiping out all of those lives. I don't think because it was seen as a solution, it should be thought of as a solution anymore. And it just made me angry. So I went into the studio and started to rant on top of this loop into the microphone. And more or less what I did is I changed a few words and phrases here and there, but what you hear on Madness is just basically me ranting. But specifically an anti-World War II war rant, obviously applicable to present day as well. At the time it was coming out of the Gulf War and the Iran-Iraq uh-huh. situation, which I kind of referenced there. I was thinking of, uh, more of the fact that we're still making war and it's still ongoing and why can't we get along in peace, which is the question that's in the song. There was a lot of stuff on the news. They were interviewing soldiers and they were talking about what they were having to do to bring democracy and law and order and all of these, you know, to these foreign places. And I just thought, really, this is such a 19th century conversation. Oh, 
information that's telling you to get down. Stay down. Keep your head down. Keep going till you reach the finish. Don't screw it up. Don't stop. Not quite as involved a soundscape as the first song. We don't have little fireworks and things going off like you do near the beginning, all those little juicy bits, but still quite a bit, especially as you get into it and you've got this synth siren and some very psychedelic fluttery leads over here and a radio station kind of thing that I assume is you talking or did you find some source material? No, actually it was some source material. It was a soldier in Iraq that I sort of threw in there, but I didn't want you to necessarily hear the conversation or the interview. So I kind of jumbled it up a bit. The Prophet 5 got a good airing. You know, some of those kind of weird swoopy sounds that you hear are are me with the Prophet 5. And I worked with a wonderful vocalist called Samadu Jayatilaka. 
who is also featuring on this new album. She really kind of gets where I'm coming from, and we're both heavily into Stevie Wonder, so it's a joy always to work and sing with her. It really stands out to have her do her one solo line at the end, just to yeah have this jump out there. You describe this as a rant, and the fact that it's literally a monotone, that you're playing with the rhythms, and especially as the song goes on, by the second verse, you're even like accenting syllables you normally wouldn't accent, because like you're following this rhythm, like the rhythm is controlling the delivery of the thing. You know, it's very different than sort of a rap or something. It sounds like that just poured out of you that way. That's exactly how I did it on the, if you like, on the demo. Mm. I wasn't thinking at all about the melody. I just, I just had these words I wanted to say. So that's the way it came out. When I sort of played it back, I thought, well, that's interesting. That's certainly something that I haven't ever done before. And I liked the direction it was going. So I thought, well, let's follow that direction. And it seems to suit the song. Well, and then leaving you room for, once you've established, I'm singing the same note, then any change that comes in, whether it's a thickening harmony or this, we don't want to hear bad news most of the time, but we hear it. And then you have basically a whole choir of you coming in just on that thing. Like it really sets you up for some dramatic moments to start from just a monotone. Yeah, it was a case of wanting to emphasize certain words and certain phrases. As you say, it's just blocking a certain phrase just to sort of highlight it or put an underline there. And I really enjoyed it. It's a different kind of painting mm-hmm. than I've done before. So you got this nice dark funk groove, electric piano. Yeah, speaking of the electric piano, so that we didn't really talk about your electric piano solo at the end of the last two. Is that sort of your instrument of default of if you're going to do a nice funky Stevie Wonder maybe is the key influence here? You know, he is probably my biggest influence. And the Rhodes was the first keyboard that I bought once Level 42 got our first record deal and we got given our first advance meant we could go out and buy our own instruments. And so I bought a Rhodes, and that was my axe, and it's my original axe. And you know, next thing I bought was a Mini Moog because I wanted to have a synth, and then the next one was the Prophet 5. But the Rhodes has always been there. You know, It's still part of my live rig, and you know, I suppose if I had to take a keyboard to a desert island, that would be the one. I don't know why a sound that's associated with the 60s and 70s should sound more timeless than the synths of the 80s, but somehow it is a pattern with a lot of the jazz folks. I compare some of what Level 42 did to like what Miles Davis was doing in the 80s, sort of what jazz people were doing in the 80s. But then almost uniformly, by the time you get to the 90s, like Herbie Hancock is not using synth sounds anymore. They're back to piano and electric piano and sort of these, in quotes, timeless, <laughs> classical. Definitely your sound palette has gotten more filled out. Like there's nothing on the new album that sounds, oh, what a thin 80s synth. Usually horns are the things that would make it stand out as like, oh, this is definitely from 1988. I don't know. Have there been some, your own taste in sounds? Has they changed with the times or just getting better equipment that now horn patches are much better? They're not going to sound like a 1988 horn patch. I think certain things came into vogue and Mm -hmm. they were kind of like new and exciting at the time. And some of them have stood the test of time better than others. I mean, you point out, I mean, synth brass is one thing that you hear all over the 80s. We used it ourselves, sometimes doubled up with real blasts, sometimes not. But 
I guess part of our sound was from the very beginning in 1980, 81 was synth brass, but it was kind of like profit. It was, mm-hmm. if you like, analog synth brass, which is a bit different to what came in with the DX7. I mean, when the DX7 came out, I, along with 8 million other people, bought one and, <laughs> and used it, you know, liberally. The dreaded DX7 chorus Rhodes sound features on Changes 1. And probably if I was going to record it again, I wouldn't use that sound. But, you know, it was part of the sound at the times. But maybe one of the reasons that an instrument like the Rhodes has lasted the test of time, it is an electromechanical instrument. So you're amplifying something that has a mechanical starting point. And every Rhodes I've played pretty much, although it has the same-ish family sound, they're all different. You know, I've played many rented roads on festival gigs over the years, and they're all different. And so my one, over the years, I've adapted its sound so that it sounds the best that I can do it. I mean, I suppose like three guitarists can pick up the same Les Paul or Fender Strat and sound different on it. But also you'll find three Fender Strats and they won't exactly sound the same either. Mm-hmm. So there's something of that individuality that is part of the magic of a Rhodes is. Well, and then also even just, of course, the big 80s thing is the way that drums were engineered or the electronic drum sounds that were used at the time. That even if you're using electronic drums now, I didn't know in the first song what they were. In this song, are there real drums? I didn't specifically try to note that. On Madness, yes, it's a great place. Uh, Miles Bould is playing drums and Yolanda Charles is playing bass on it. But Miles has just got a really, really solid groove and it The nature of the song was I just wanted him to just stick to the groove. I had a great quote that's attributed to James Brown. I don't know if it's true or not, but he allegedly said to one of his drummers, don't play a fill unless you're going to come back with a better groove. And that's the sort of mindset which I really appreciate. Well, I knew at least there was live symbols on this because the song lives on the ride symbol. In fact, the hi-hat is just like it's instead of the snare half the time. Do you recall, was he just playing that with his feet or was there an overdubbed ride symbol? The ride is overdubbed on that. And there is a place, you dream against the flow, you dream against the tide, where instead of the bass and the electric piano chords, you have a little synth percussion thing come in. You dream against the flow, you dream against the tide, you dream against the ocean of information that's telling you to get down, stay down. So you still got drums in there, but you got this this kind of synth overdub thing. Profit five, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to just finding some percussion <laughs> instrument that would... On the first tune we discussed too, that you were doing something to, unless I'm confusing this with the third one, but to keep it sounding funky enough, like you got to do, what, a hand clap, something over the snare, at least some of the time to thicken it up. Well, it's bringing in some other colors from the palette that, if you like, I know, which is basically the Profit five do such a variety of things, which I've learned from watching Wally Badaru in action in the studio doing the level stuff. I mean, he's a real master programmer. Sometimes he would take a long time to come up with the sound and we'd be like, where's this going, Wally? And he's like, just be patient, just be patient. And then we get there and say, ah, now I see what you were going for. The thing I was thinking about the disco drums and overdubbing the thing that is for Weave Your Spell that we're going to talk about in a second. Let me ask you about just a couple more little spots in this one. I've got another 346. Seven, my notes say instrumental with fluttery synth siren. Why 
is that also profit there? That's using the vibrato and just setting the, the modulation wheel on. So it starts as a very slow and just increasing the rate from very slow to very fast where it goes. And then if you change the pitch, then it seems to become something else, like another sound altogether. And I just wanted to introduce the madness that is the theme of the song at that point. The part that most stands out in that part is that reverbed acoustic guitar riff. Is it an actual acoustic guitar or is it like a synth? It was written on a sort of a guitar-y sound, and Dominic Miller, who played the acoustic guitar on this, sort of doubled it up. Okay, yeah, just to have that one simple repeating riff fly out as like the beacon of sunshine, and then to have, then have that offset with, besides having the vocals continue, you know, with your crazy harmonies on madness, 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 and this fluttery thing that we were just pointing out, that you can have the madness fighting the central groove that keeps you rooted i've long felt like that was a way that artists could be you could use the crazy jazz chords you could use very psychedelic stuff because you have a solid groove and people will forgive anything if you got rid of the groove i've never really kind of analyzed it too much you know i just kind of go organically where it needs to go but like i say i wanted to introduce this madness thing and i guess if like another artist had written that song maybe at that point there'd be a mad guitar solo or a sax you know heavy contemporary bebop solo i mean you could do a number of things at that point but for me it was kind of like the prophet five was then my moment to solo but not solo because i didn't really want to make it musical because that would have been against the spirit of the song i'm not trying to say ah okay folks let's have a smooth jazz moment and just calm down (laughs) it's like no (laughs) yeah and the first song, like as you approach the solo before it becomes an actual electric piano solo, it's sort of trading off. So you've got, you know, a guitar. It sounds like maybe the guitar is going to solo, but it's just doing a riff that you're answering and then the horns are answering that. So the solo sort of emerges out of this. In both cases, it's not a simple. And now the solo. <laughs> yes. Again, I take a leaf out of another influence, which is Joe Zawinul on Weather Report. You know, he famously says, yes. we always solo and we never solo. So that's kind of been a philosophy for kind of level 42 as well. I mean, you know, there are solos on certain tracks, but a lot of the time it's, you know, what it always excited us and is part of my DNA was the kind of groove and people sort of bouncing off each other, trading ideas, but not necessarily saying, okay, the sort of ta-da, and now the curtains open and the spotlight falls. Well, let's get one of those with a solo groove on it. Weave Your Spell by Level 42 from The Pursuit of Accidents, 1982. So right near the beginning of your career. And this is one that you wrote with Mark King, lyrics by Phil Gould, but you are the lead voice. No, actually, I wrote the lyrics on this. Oh, all right. It's credited to the three of you. I just presumed. Is that an error? Do people just assume that Phil, or is Phil not involved in the writing of this at all? He was involved, but what we would tend to do is we split the songwriting into whoever took part in it, and we didn't necessarily distinguish between lyrics and, sure. and music. But, you know, Phil had a had a hand in this musically, as did Mark. So that's why we're sort of credited together. But yeah, definitely, this is one of my early attempts at lyric writing. <laughs> All right, well, let's hear it. Thank you. 
right at the beginning, the is that a Wally sound? Yeah. Do you remember sort of the circumstances under this? Was this a demo that you had put together or what was the general writing pattern when you were doing stuff with Mark? Or was this a jam that the three of you were in the room together? How did this start? Do you recall? In those days, we tended to write in a rehearsal studio. So we would rent a rehearsal studio and we would just jam, you know, five days a week with the ghetto blaster sitting in the room. And if during our jam session, if anything that sounded interesting came up, we just hit record on the ghetto blaster. We'd play into it. And then next day we'd come in the morning and sort of review and listen to the sort of rather distorted playback because, you know, poor old ghetto blasters <laughs> couldn't deal with Mark and Phil going hammer and tongs all the time. But it was enough. And in fact, I came up with the original bass riff for this, but it was in 7-8, not in the way you hear it. <laughs> so the original tune, the way the bass riff ran would have been... Still some groove to that. It would have been had to have a skip bass drum and there would have been that sort of funny moment over the handbags where, oh, what happened to that beat? So it was decided at some point to straighten it out and make it a 4-4. So with the skip beat, but incorporated within a sort of, you know, four bar phrase. I think the sort of the melody came. I think I came up with that melody fairly early. And then it was where to go with that, which is where, you know, Phil and Mark kind of helped with that. I don't remember exactly the ins and outs of it, but eventually we came up with the song. And Wally Badru was never with us normally, except for a couple of exceptions. When we were writing stuff, normally we'd be writing as a four piece. And then as we got into the studio, Wally would join us at that point. The benefit of that was, if you like, that Wally would hear everything fresh because we'd already been working on it for a few weeks or whatever. And so he'd have ideas based on suddenly kind of coming fresh to him. But also he was like, say, a master synth programmer. So that whole introduction, which was a sort of Stevie-ish inspired thing, where you know, Wally came up with those sounds and all those white noise whooshes that you hear throughout the song, that's his stuff. Right, which is that you're still doing some of that in the last song in Madness, these crescendoing single note synth rah, that carries us to the next you know you're still retaining some of that flashy orchestration that theatrical bits of let's just throw in how do you when you switch to a live setting you just strip all that stuff off because you just can't in the early days because there was only me on stage i basically had to try and cover two keyboard players parts and so if you watch any kind of early footage on youtube or whatever you'll see me sort of jumping around doing lightning fast patch changes but of course, you couldn't cover everything. So you just left some of it out. And then as 84 came along, got first Roland sequencer, you know, monophonic, so it could do certain things. And then the first polyphonic sequencer, which was a Yamaha, you could add more parts and play other keyboards live triggered from the sequencer. And then eventually now, you know, obviously we're using a laptop and audio tracks and playing along. But we've been playing along with sequencers for a long time. But it's now possible to have a lot more of the keyboard parts of that early stuff represented and played, and you'll hear it being played along with the live stuff. And the whole idea is that it integrates seamlessly so that it just feels like one band performing. Yeah, you got a nice breakdown here with this echoey kind of piano solo over the main riff, you know, by the time we're only two minutes in. Actually, let me play the part just before that. This what I'm calling the instrumental bridge, which I was sort of wondering, like, this could have been the intro. It's something that as the song goes on, you just alternate between this and the chorus. 
yeah, any thought of saving that for where you did almost two minutes into the song rather than, for instance, just starting the whole song off with that before you get in the groove? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember why we did it, but uh, <laughs> I know that because the original idea of the song was just this straight through bass groove, it obviously needed, we felt, you know, light and shade. So I imagine that's probably where Phil, that sounds like a kind of Phil musical idea. So I imagine he probably would have jumped in and said, you know, what about this to sort of break up between the chorus and the, and the next verse, as it were. And so before the sort of tape kind of droopy piano solo, yeah, I imagine that he suggested that segment in and we kind of went with it. It's great when other people jump in with their ideas. That's part of being a group is that you, you don't have to sort of try and think of everything. Well, do you know the source of this is the most disco of the things we've heard? You've had very heavy grooves, like on the first song we talked about today, but this one just goes, you know, it almost seems like, okay, now we're going into the chorus. Can we make it more disco just for that section? even though that groove even continues to go into the next verse, somehow just with the layering or, or something or those extra hand claps or whatever it is that are on the snare, like we still need to, when we're going into a chorus, we need to pick it up. Do you know like what you were channeling at this point? Certainly it wasn't the same idea as your, your seven, eight thing. It's we're going to go full on groove. This is going to be a single. I think we sort of probably thought along the lines that it could be a single. And in fact, it was released as a single. There's a very dodgy video I think the first probably promo video we ever made with me wearing a white suit and some Vaseline around the outside <laughs> edges of the lens to give it that soft focus thing and some very eggy acting on our part. But, you know, it was fun. This is like, hey, we get to wear clothes and pretend like we're actors. I mean, it's just great fun. So that was just what we kind of thought. We just liked the groove and we weren't necessarily thinking we want to make a disco record. It just felt like it was going to be four on the floor and it was going to be a club thing. And don't forget that really where Level 42 started was in the clubs because our first producer, Andy Soika, who signed us to his elite label, had his ear to the ground, had a record shop, new DJs would really into the kind of jazz funk thing. And he sort of plugged us into that movement. So our early gigs had been in clubs. There was a connection already with that scene. So was there an adjustment at that point when you're starting to do clubs of, you know, maybe we're little art school jazz guys, but now we for sure need to just groove through most of this or else that's not going to connect with that audience. Or was that just something you just liked anyway? I mean, it's something we liked. I mean, we're big fans of James Brown. And, you know, he's one of our major influences. And going back to the quote I said earlier, I mean, that was the beauty of James Brown is, you know, coming out of that whole African, West African, you know, Fela Kuti thing where you find a groove, you stick to it and you sing the message of the song and the groove kind of doesn't change much. But I would never call us art house sort of jazz. I mean, our jazz influences are more like coming from the whole Miles Davis bitches brew in a silent way, melting pot. And all of those musicians that played on those albums, like particularly John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Chick Corea and the Return to Forever and Joe Zown and Weather Report, I mean, they were huge influences and inspirations on us too. So there was always room on either on the albums or the B-side to go out in a more kind of like jazz exploration or jazz fusion exploration. You listen to that Pursuit of Accidents album, it has a variety of things. So it's not like... We never felt pinned down because we could always do different kinds of tracks and stick them all on the same album. And did they? You were saying people would be hovering over you saying a single has to be three minutes. 
Was there a single version of this that just cut off the whole bass breakdown? And Exactly, yes. Most of the tracks that you hear that became singles, there would have been a, well, probably a four-minute version that was written on as three minutes 58 or something on the label. Yes, there was a single version of that which didn't have the bass breakdown in it. You could just do this breakdown and then build it back up. But no, you have to stop at four minutes in for a Latin instrumental set, like with the whistle and the rototoms and, you know, fully samba it up for a brief period before going back to your bridge in chorus. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a tradition of a percussion break. I mean, that's something that we sometimes would have to resort to in a live situation, particularly in the early days. You know, you'd occasionally you'd have things like we'd be playing in a tent in Holland and suddenly there'd be a power cut, you know, and the audience are standing there. So we just go into a, a drum and percussion break until the power switch back on. Does that mean you have percussion next to you ready to grab to join in on maracas or whatever for those things yourself? Yeah, we did. But also we had songs that, you know, like, are you hearing what I hear? Which really from that same album, which, you know, we do a big swapping instrument section. I'd get on the kit and Mark and Phil be on the rotor toms and Boomy on the kibasa. When we met, the background of this is, although I played piano since I was small, I was actually playing drums at the time that I met Mark and Phil. I was playing in a dodgy cover band at college. And when I met Mark, he was also a drummer. He'd come up to London from the Isle of Wight looking for a job in a drum shop, couldn't get one, and managed to find a job in a shop that sold guitars and basses and in his spare time learnt the bass. But he was principally a drummer and wanted to be a drummer. So in fact, there were three drummers and a guitarist that formed Level 42. So drums and percussion were always a really important part of the DNA of the band. You mentioned polishing off to play hi-hat in cymbals yourself. Do you have a, a kit in your house that you... It is the most fun to play. You know, you get better energy out than jamming on keyboard, I would imagine. Well, funnily enough, you should mention that I've literally just had my old drum kit, which I enhanced by finding a bargain on eBay. I've got drums made by a British drum maker called Eddie Ryan, who is kind of an independent drum maker, makes really good drums. He's not a very well-known make, particularly outside of the UK. But anyway, that was the kit I was playing back in the day. And I've just had them refurbished, new heads put on, and I'm now, instead of putting them back in the garage where they were gathering mould because my garage is not watertight, it's going to go in the house and I'm going to turn my biggest spare bedroom into the studio so I can set them up and start playing them again and recording them again. Excellent. Well, and I haven't listened to the, you mentioned Delata that I know you've been playing live with for a while. I mean, as a Brazilian R&B band, like, are there... Full band drum breakdown? Is it? Do they go to that length of the, you know, the, the Latin band? Yes. Uh, I mean, I haven't played with Delata for a long time now, but yes, definitely. I mean, okay. we'd have batucada sections and a lot of the Afro-Brazilian rhythms were very prevalent in that music. And quite often, you know, we would jump onto the percussion instruments. Well, let's wrap up by just introducing something from the album that we haven't talked about for more than two seconds here, which is Conversations with Silence, your 2003 album. Piano instrumentals. Uh, you said you'd started on piano. That, that was your original axe, so to speak. Can you say a little about that project and this song before we say goodbye and let folks hear it? Like you said, I have been playing the piano you know, since, well, I mean, having lessons since I was six. And I often play, you know, it's almost like therapy. I mean, drums is a fantastic therapy, particularly for anger management, if you like. But <laughs> yes. Piano, I found that, you know, if I was feeling particularly strong feelings, you know, emotions, whether it be kind of sadness or joy or anger or whatever. Quite often I'd go into the sitting room and I would just improvise. And that's something that I've done. I used to do that at school in those sort of lonely moments or if I was 
I had a relationship breakup or something with another girl at schools, you know, my resort instantly would be to go and play. But I would just always be playing. And it's where a lot of the ideas for my songs would come, often from improvising, and then my fingers would fall upon something and mm-hmm. it would sound interesting. And I'd have a, you know, a Walkman next to the piano. I mean, nowadays it'd be a smartphone with the voice memo. So a few people have said to me over the years, I really like the way you play piano. You know, have you ever thought of making a piano album? And so after a few requests of that nature, I thought, okay, yeah, why not? And so I got together with this classical composer, Australian guy called Roland Chadwick, I'd I'd met uh, doing some courses. And he basically became the sort of producer of the music and helped me sort of guide and shape some of these pieces into a, a form where... I could really explore, if you like, the sort of classical side partly, but I'd also just been to Cuba. So there's a Cuban song on there and there's a Brazilian song on there because I've loved Brazilian music since I was young. But I really wanted to make it a more or less piano instrumental album as a complete foil to what I'd been doing with Level 42 up to that point. I'm surprised, given your facility with this, that given the simplicity of doing solo gigs as a pianist slash singer, did you do this live? Did you do a set of shows of these piano instrumentals or some variations off of them? I have done some solo gigs where I've played one or two of those pieces on there. And in fact, recently there's a guy in the States whose daughter discovered the Conversations with Silence album and she's learned to play Heart of the Matter, even though if you like, from a technical point of view, it was a challenge for her. But she just studied and learned it and she's done several performances of it now. Her piano teacher has transcribed it for her and has also transcribed another tune off the album. So it seems to be that it's sort of picking up. And and you're quite right. I have thought that maybe one day I'll do just a a mic solo piano album tour and just play instrumentals and sing or something like that. The Billy Joel thing or whatever, you know, that it's just so easy even to just play piano versions of your classic tunes. You know, every guitarist, it seems a lot of the people I've interviewed, they have at some point, yeah, Nick Kershaw has a, all of my hits redone with, you know, me playing acoustic guitar and singing. A thing that fans will appreciate and that is just right there and that then you can do a tour and only pay one person (laughs) yourself. Yes, that's very true. I mean, I've had solo spots, like when I've been touring with Dominic Miller, for example, I have a a version of Something About You, which Mm -hmm. I arranged just for voice and solo piano, which works very well. I think mainly because the lyrics are so good and you hear the lyrics in a different way when it's just the piano. I mean, they just stand out more and Boone wrote some fantastic lyrics on that song. And I've got a few other level tunes that I've, you know, rearranged because of course with level 42, with all the production involved and the bass playing and the drumming and once you strip all those away, it's sometimes you have to reapproach them. So that is something that I would like to do, but I think just playing it live is stronger than any kind of recording that I could make of those tunes. So it could be something that I do at some point. Well, I look forward to hearing the rest of the new album when it is done. You were saying maybe December, is that right? Or is that too optimistic? I think it'd be the beginning of next year. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Mark. I've really enjoyed it. And here it is, Heart of the Matter.
Thanks so much to Mike. A real treat to talk to this guy. I'll say 80s synth jazz rock is not my primary listening genre, but I really enjoyed getting into his well-thought-out, detailed arrangements, and it was great fun talking to him about them. Remember, you can go to MikeLindup.com to learn more about what he is up to and to learn more about this podcast, Nakedly Examined Music is the place you want to go. There is a little widget in the upper right corner of that site that says review this podcast and that will give you exact directions if you don't know how to go to Apple Music or some other places to leave a nice rating and review. Doing so always helps people discover this. And as I mentioned, if you want to support it financially, patreon.com slash nakedly examined music because i'm guessing you don't want to hear me read ads and you don't want to hear the auto inserted ads that we are now using to fund this enterprise i think i've recorded nothing since last i released one of these episodes i currently only have one other in the bag right now rebecca pigeon though i hope to be recording one this week that i've been looking forward to for my whole podcasting career but which I still will not reveal until it actually happens. Another thing supporters can look out to is I'm about to record some reflections on the last year regarding all of my podcasts with my audio editor, Tyler Hislop. So if you become a supporter through Patreon or through the paid Apple podcast feed, you'll get to hear that at some point within the next few days, I believe. And I'll say on that recording, I will reveal who this surprise guest is. So... Let your curiosity and not just your generosity guide you. Thanks, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Staying creative, staying alive in all senses. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintenmeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.